Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yay, good to hear some feedback. How are we doing today? We good? We're doing swell. Uh, well, my name's Alex. I serve as one of the pastors here. Good to be with you all as we worship our Lord and Savior. Uh, about two years ago, um, Ricky and I, uh, we went to a church planter's assessment. Right before we planted the church, they had us kind of drive up to Ashland, and we spent a couple of days with some leaders within the denomination, and we spent some time with some other people who were considering church planting, and it, it sounds exactly like what they call it. It is an assessment uh, where they kind of assess, hey, are these people uh, in a good spot? Are they fit to plant a church? And I passed, and they told Ricky no. And um, <laughs> that's not true. That's a joke. Um, but as we are going through the process, um, they're kind of just evaluating where we're at spiritually, where we're at in our marriages, and how we're doing uh, just in our own walk with the Lord. And they sat us down during these lunches at different times. And as we're sitting with these different assessors um, who are kind of trying to get to know us, they're poking and prodding with different questions here and there. And I'll never forget one of the lunches that I sat down with a guy named Doug, a uh, bald guy, got glasses. Uh, and, and I'll never forget the question that he asked me because that moment struck me so profoundly. He sat there and he looked me in the eyes and he said, who is Alex? Basic question. So I'm kind of like, oh, okay. I'll start answering. I'll tell you who Alex is. Uh, and so I start kind of going, I've, I've been in youth ministry for the last year and a half. I've got a master's degree in management. Um, I'm the second in my family to graduate college. I competed in college track and field. And he stops me and he's like, no, I don't want to know any of that. Who is Alex? And I'm kind of like, uh, I'm telling you who he is. <laughs> And so I list off like four other things that I've kind of done in my life. And I start telling him all, all of these accolades, right, that I've kind of put on my life. And he stops me and he goes, no, no, no. Forget all the things you've done. Forget the job titles. Forget the achievements. Take it all away. Who is Alex? I had no answer for him. I was stunned. Completely blown away. No clue how to respond to this guy. And he continues to press in. And he just pokes a little further. And he gets to the point to where he stops me and he says, doesn't that bother you? And as I'm wrestling with that conversation, I, I look back and I think to that moment. And I'm like, man, how would I respond to that today if he asked me again? Like if I saw Doug and we had lunch and he stopped me and said, who's Alex? How would I respond? And I think so often all of us are constantly asking that same question, who am I? We're caught up with trying to answer that question with maybe our different accomplishments, our job titles, our success rates, uh, what we bring to the table, who, who we're married to, what our children look like when we send them off and they're grown up. And we start to think that all of those things are what identify us. We start to think that all of what we've accumulated is who we are, and it's what our identity is. But today in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to see that our identity is not from what we do, but it's for, from who we belong to. So the big idea that we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is the beloved son who identifies with his people. 
Big idea. Jesus is the beloved son who identifies with his people. So we're going to see that in two movements, kind of train tracks for the morning, two points, right? First, we're going to see that Jesus identifies with the people. Oh, wow, so surprising. That's a good, clever uh, sub-point there, Alex. Uh, And then the second one is that the father identifies his son. So if you would, open up Matthew chapter 3. We're going to start in verse uh, 13. Somebody give me an amen when you open your Bible there. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, We're reading scripture together. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. So first point this morning, Jesus identifies with his people. If we think back to last week, we kind of started up again our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and Ricky walked us through the first half of uh, Matthew chapter 3, and in chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist. He's a prophet. He's someone who foretold of the way of Jesus, right? He's paving the way for Jesus to come. He's baptizing people. People are coming to him to confess their sins, to uh, have this baptism of repentance. And we learned that repentance isn't just saying, okay, I'm not going to sin anymore, and that's good. It's not behavior modification, but it's heart transformation. It's actually changing, not just uh, saying, I'm no longer going to sin, but it's saying, man, I want to turn to God. I want to turn to who God is and what he's done, and I want to actually follow him. And so along with John's message, he continues to proclaim of this Messiah to come, this one who he's more powerful than John. He's not even worthy to take off his sandals. And then we get to meet the man, Jesus himself. We see Jesus approaches John, and it tells us, the scripture tells us that he comes from Galilee. That's about a 60-mile walk. 60-mile walk from Jesus to go from Galilee all the way to the Jordan River to be baptized. He comes with a purpose. Verse 14 uh, reads to us, and it tells us that as Jesus tells John, he's like, hey, I need you to baptize me. John kind of looks at him and is stunned. No, 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 Jesus. I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. You're the one that I've been preaching about. You're the big guy. You're the one who's more powerful than me. the, The savior of the world, the Messiah, the promised king. And you're asking me to baptize you. Jesus kind of looks at him and he's like, buddy, I'm God. Come on, just like do it. Uh, it's not what he says, but it's kind of how like I imagine maybe like the conversation may be going. Uh, but as, as I think through this, one, one of the main questions that I think all of us maybe have as we read this, this text and we kind of sit there and we're like, why does Jesus need to be baptized? What, what's the whole point of that? Why, why is he coming to have this baptism of repentance? Isn't he the Messiah? Isn't Jesus supposed to be sinless? Never to have fallen into sin, and yet he's coming to have a baptism of repentance. That makes no sense. He doesn't have any sin to confess. But verse 15, Jesus gives us the answer. Why? Why is Jesus being baptized? He says, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. So quick note, fulfill, fulfillment 
That's a, that's a major theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So if you got your little your Bible or your pen, you can underline the word fulfill. And every time you see that, kind of underline it, circle, highlight it, kind of point out to see that this is something that the Holy Spirit through Matthew is, is trying to show us that Jesus is continually fulfilling these things. So uh, notice that word every time it pops up. But what Jesus is doing here with this baptism is we kind of wonder and we're like, okay, so if he's being baptized... To fulfill all righteousness, does that mean when he's baptized and it's done and over, then he's already, like, accomplished it all? It's all said and done? Project over? Time to go home? No. We have to remember what baptism is. This baptism specifically. This baptism of repentance is, uh, if someone was to go and take this baptism, they would be telling the world, I have sinned against the holy God. And I'm coming because I want to turn my life to God. I want heart transformation. I want to be cleansed from the sin that I've committed, and I want to take the path properly, the path correctly. And so all the people that are coming, think about the type of people that are coming, right? They're all sinful people. The watching world is looking on to Jesus, maybe not knowing who he is at all, and Jesus comes to take this baptism of repentance. While he doesn't need to repent of any sin, he's telling the watching world, watch me. I'm going to walk the righteous path. Watch me. I'm going to walk the way of God. And so he's proclaiming to the world what he's going to continue to do, how he's going to fulfill all righteousness. And this is just a piece of what he's going to do for the next three years as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew and see his entire life. And in the same way that he steps into this moment and says, watch me, He's also identifying with the people there. He's identifying with all of them because all the people there are sinful people. All the people there are coming and saying, I've sinned. I'm unclean. I'm not holy. But I need to repent and I need to turn to God. And in this moment, Jesus comes and he says, I need to be baptized by you, John. Imagine John. He's baptizing person after person, you know, next in line. Hey, next, thanks. What's your sin? Okay, okay, you stole the cat. Yep, you probably should have just left it in the wilderness. Let's go. And, and he's taking all of them and he's baptizing them. And it gets to the point where these people are just confessing that and saying, I've screwed up. I've turned away from God and I want to repent and I want to turn to him. And here Jesus identifies with all those people. In the crowd, the watching world, sitting with a bunch of messy people who are saying, I've turned away from God, but I want to turn back. And I know in John chapter 1, we were told of how, you know, John sees Jesus in the crowd, and he's like, behold, the Lamb of God has come. But before John sees Jesus, I like to imagine it something like this, where Jesus walks there from Galilee. He approaches the crowd and he stands right in line with them, waiting to be baptized. And to everyone who sees him, they have no idea that he's the Messiah of the world. All they see is a man who's coming to take a baptism of repentance. They see the same thing that they have in their own heart, someone who sinned and wants to turn back to God. Little do they know that this man is completely sinless. I mean, think about it. This is Jesus. 
God in the flesh, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who created all things. Colossians 1 tells us that it was created for him and by him. He's eternal, he's perfect, and yet God is identifying with sinners. He's standing right next to him in line, and it gets me thinking, how much cooler Jesus is than me? How, how much more righteous and holy and kind and good that God is? Because I often find myself in different moments where I don't want to identify with certain people. I'll just go back to high school because that's the easy one to kind of think of. In high school, I was kind of part of like two friend groups. The really like weird kids. It's hard to imagine, I know. But, like, they were loud, they're funny, they're goofy, and I just loved being around them because I could just kind of, I'm like, oh, I fit in. But then I was also friends with, like, the kids who were, like, the popular crowd and the athletes and stuff. And I remember one time, I'm sitting in the hallway, I'm hanging out with this crowd, and I see some of my homies from over there, they start coming, and I just kind of, hmm. Yep, just because I didn't want to identify with them. I wanted to stay away from them. And I get that same feeling when I'm out at Walmart and I maybe see Ricky and I'm like, oh, yep. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love Ricky. Um, but maybe you've had a, an experience like this as I was thinking, of, man, what are things that we do today that are kind of like that? And, and maybe you're talking with a friend who, who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, who isn't a believer, who maybe has just like some hurt with the church. Someone who's maybe been uh, treated poorly by someone who's considered themselves a Christian or, or the church has done some damage just in their own life and heart. And they've got some uh, past wounds and scars. And you're talking to them and they're like, oh, well, you're like a Christian, right? And you, you kind of go and you go. Well, I'm a, uh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like one of those Christians. And we don't want to identify with people. But Jesus, he himself has no issue identifying with sinful people. He, he has no care in the world to be around sinners. He doesn't stand around going to the front of the line saying, hey, I'm here. Let me preach, John. Get out of the way. Make sure everybody knows who I am. He sits right with him. In the middle of all of it, Jesus identifies with these people. Why? Why would he do that? Because he loves them. He has great compassion for them. Because he knows what he's going to do for them. He knows exactly how he's going to save and redeem the sinful people. 2 Corinthians 5, we went through it a couple of weeks ago here at church, but 2 Corinthians 5, again, it tells us that Jesus was going to take on, he does take on the sin of the world, and he gives his righteousness to those who believe in him, to those who love him, to those who walk with him. That's good news that Christ himself, the ruler of the world, doesn't come just saying, hmm, I don't want to hang out with those average people. Give me like the super holy ones. We don't exist. There's no such thing as like a super holy Christian, but the Savior of the world has no issue rubbing shoulders with you or me. The man who is mightier than I, the man whose sandals none of us are worthy to tie or to take off, the, the one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Redeemer of the world has no issue identifying with you. What an amazing God that we have. That is the God that we serve and we sing to because Jesus identifies with us. 
But Jesus isn't the only one who identifies with people in this passage. Let's keep reading, uh, starting in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with who I am well pleased. Second point for the morning uh, that we see in the text is that the Father identifies his Son. The Father identifies his Son. We see John's response. He said, okay, Jesus, I will baptize you. Baptizes him. And in that moment, Jesus comes up out of the water. The heavens split open. The dove descends on him. A spirit like a dove descends on him. And he hears the voice from heaven speak over him. I'm well pleased with you. You are mine. My son. And there's two great prophetic passages from the Old Testament that are actually quoted here if we look closely. The first one is Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1, it's this great prophecy that we read, and it says this. It says, this is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I put my spirit on him, he will bring justice to the nations. It's not that Jesus didn't have the spirit of God before he was baptized. It's not that we receive the spirit right when we're baptized. We receive the spirit when we believe in Christ, right? We are filled with him, but it it identifies him. This is the spirit of God identifying Jesus as the promised servant that God told us about in the Old Testament, right? It's the spirit's proclamation of who Christ is. Then the father speaks over him and, and he says that he's well pleasing him, that he's his beloved son. Again, this is another Old Testament prophecy. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It was likely a a coronation psalm. So this psalm was likely read over uh, the people who were being enthroned as kings over Israel if they were from the Davidic line, right? But after the exile, there's no longer any uh, Davidic kings. And so this psalm was then seen to be a prophecy, awaiting for the true Messiah, the true son of David to come and to redeem his people, to lead them, to be their king. And God said, this is my son, my servant son, who's going to lead my people. And this is what Matthew has been doing the entire time. As, as we look through the first couple of chapters of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is revealing to us time and time again a declaration of who Jesus is. You go to Matthew 1, opening page. What's he do? Genealogy. By the bloodline, Jesus is worthy to be the king of the world. What's he do right after that? Okay, cool. There's an, an angel. There's some wise men. All right, sweet. They're going to proclaim that Jesus is the true king of Israel, not Herod. Then there's the prophets who who foretell of Jesus to come, the king to come out of Egypt, to be born a Nazarene. Then there's the final prophet, John the Baptist, who says, I'm going to pave the way for the king, right? I'm going to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. He is coming. And now finally, the Spirit of God and the Father declare who Jesus is, the Son of God. The identity of Jesus is being proclaimed to us by the highest authority there is. He's letting us know, this is my Son. And I'm well pleased with him. And if people want to maybe claim, hey, yeah, I don't know. The bloodline seems a little corrupt. There's some sinful people in there. All right, cool. 
Listen to the proclamation of the angels and the wise men. Angels are saying Jesus is the king. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe that people just ate some bad mushrooms or something. Okay, don't care about them. Well, what about the prophets? They, they've been foretelling of this guy for hundreds of years. Um, I'm just not sure that I can trust some prophecies of, of, of who that guy is. All right, well, let me show you that God the Father speaks over him. Is that good enough? The greatest and highest authority rips open the heavens and speaks this over his beloved son, saying, this is the Savior of the world. This is the one to come. This is my servant son who will lead his people, who will redeem them and continue to rule over them time and time again. And now as we think of, you know, the the baptism story of Jesus, if you go and read it in the other Gospels, there's a slight difference between the one in Matthew and the one in the other ones. And so if you read Matthew... He says, this is my beloved son. If you go and read the other gospels, it says, you are my beloved son. So Matthew, by the power of the Spirit, as as he's writing this, is clearly making a point. It is a declaration of the Son of God to come, right? The Son of God who is here. He's looking down on him with great approval of who he is and what he's going to do, that he's going to fulfill all righteousness. Another question that maybe pops up in our minds is like, man, is this audible? Like, did, people, did everybody around there like hear this? Did they see the heavens rip open? What's that look like? We don't know. We have no idea. The text doesn't tell us, and so apparently, like, God didn't think it was that important for us to know whether it was uh, there for everyone else to see or if it was just an intimate moment between the Trinity. But as we read this passage and as we look at the life of Jesus, something fun to notice about this is Jesus really hasn't done anything. This is the first time we really see him really do anything throughout the gospel. Like everything that's happened up to this point has been stuff that's happened to his family or people around him. These are all stories that uh, we just read and we kind of go, okay, when, when's he going to start doing stuff? Like he hasn't started doing miracles, healings, teachings. He hasn't called any of the disciples, nothing. And yet he has the father's approval. He's done nothing, and yet he still has this amazing encouragement proclamation from the father. The father identifies his son without him having to do any work. This is good news because I sit here and I look and I'm like, man, he doesn't need to work for his approval. He doesn't have to beg for it. He doesn't have to look for it. He doesn't have to dream of what it would actually feel like to have his father approve of him. The father loves his son. Why? Because he's his son. And here's where the beauty lies with all of that. How the Father identifies Jesus is the same way he identifies us if you're in Christ. Without any work, without any approval, what the Father says about Jesus is true of you if you've believed and put your faith in Jesus Christ. How can we be absolutely sure of this? Let's read some more scripture to see. 2 Corinthians 5. Again, I'm going to read that same passage. 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus did not know any sin. He did not fall into temptation. He was completely righteous, and yet he identified with people who were completely sinful, unholy, unclean, far away from God, and he stood right next to sinners like you and me. And he, not, he doesn't just identify with us in baptism, but he identifies with us to the point to where he took the cross, what we deserved, the death that we deserved. The wicked, painful, gruesome death that he took on the cross was ours, and yet he replaced it for us. He took that for us, and what was his, what is his, is now also ours. We have his righteousness, and that is glorious news that we get to just think about and sit with. In John 16, uh, verse 15, he says this. He says, everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. He goes on in verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. Everything. That is Jesus's is ours. Everything. We get to identify with the Savior of the world. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. So if you've never believed in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Christ. If you've never actually given your life to him. I want you to see that in Matthew chapter 3. God is declaring this amazing beloved son who did all the work for us, who gave his life for us, whom he is well pleased in, that we could believe in him, trust in him, put our faith in him, and we could have all of the glorious riches that he has. That while we were separated from God and we were in sin, far away from him, Jesus did all the work so that we could be granted his righteousness. He says, if you love and believe in me, all that the Father has is yours. All that is mine is yours. All the love that I receive from the Father is yours. What good news is that? The Father, the one who created us, the one who knows you before the world began, the one who knit you in your mother's womb, because you trust in Christ, You have all that is his. Good news. He says, you are my child. I'm so pleased with you. So well pleased with you that you don't have to earn my love. And I give it all over to you. You are mine. And we have that as a grace from God. You no longer have to wonder the question that all of us wrestle with. Who am I? Am I my job? Am I the status of all my social accolades? Am I the approval of the people that I seek? Am I my parents' legacy? Am I my race? Who am I? You could be a beloved child of the one true king if you gave your life to Christ. That's a free gift. You don't have to do anything. Just like the Father approves of Jesus before he does anything, because of the work that Jesus has done, we are approved of by the Father if we trust in him. We don't have to do any sort of work, but he died the death that we deserve. He raised on the third day. He defeated sin and death so that we could have everlasting life with him. And if you've trusted in Christ, if you believed in Jesus, now here's my baptism plug, okay? You guys were waiting for it. I know it. Uh, we, We get to respond. We get to actually proclaim that to the world. This baptism that we get to celebrate in two weeks is just something beautiful that that if you've never been baptized, you get to show the world and tell everybody what Jesus has done in your life. 
This is you saying, I'm someone who is far off from God, who could not do it, who could not try to earn his approval, and yet I have it because of what Jesus did for me. As much as I work and try hard and try to clean myself up and be good and try to show a great face to people, he did it all for me, and I get to have the amazing love of the Father. That's the good news that we get to proclaim in baptism. So if you've never been baptized, if you're curious about baptism, feel free to ask us. We're more than willing to just have conversations about it. And if you've trusted in Christ, if you've walked through baptism, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, I just want to encourage us to remind us time and time again, we need this reminder that we are the beloved children of God. He looks on you with great joy because of what Christ has done. That's good news that we get to see, that he's given us everything, that it's rightfully ours because of him. And so if, if we are his children, right, if we've been changed by him, if we've been transformed by him, would we not speak like him? As I wrestled with this passage, I started thinking about how much I personally crave affirmation. And I know that a lot of us maybe wrestle with that. We desire to be encouraged. We like talking about ourselves because we want people to tell us that we're doing great. We enjoy the the feedback we get from people. We crave affirmation from people. So what if we gave that to those around us? What if all the people that we try to maybe see and are maybe frustrated with at different points, what if rather than complaining about everything they do that frustrates us, we gave them great words of encouragement in the way that they gave us joy? What if we spoke less about the frustrations of those around us and spoke more of the encouragement that they give to us? What if as parents we spoke the love and affirmation over our children rather than talking about the things they do that annoy us? Now, I get it. Parenting is hard. I'm not talking about expressing the hardships of parenting. But I'm talking about when we're hanging out with friends and we just talk about all the things that the kids do that frustrate us? Like, what if we actually spoke to them the amazing joy that they bring to us in our hearts time and time again and reminded them of the love that we have for them? What if the person in the office that frustrates us and makes us really annoyed and angry, we stopped thinking about everything they do that annoys us and we started sharing with them how much that we actually enjoy being around them in the different moments of the time when they make us laugh or smile Like, what if we gave them the same affirmation that the Father gives to us? What if we spoke like the Father that we have? Here's how this passage strikes me in my own personal application. My own walk, Matthew chapter 3. This this passage has always been beautiful for me. My parents were divorced when I was like three or four years old. I've shared before about this weird tension This weird relationship, this weird distance that I have between me and my dad. And I've always wondered in the back of my mind why he left. I've wondered in the back of my mind time and time again, why would he leave me? I've wondered over and over again, why wasn't I good enough? I've wondered over and over again, why doesn't he want me? I can remember the first time I heard my dad say he was proud of me. I was 18. 
And I have this weird picture in my head that sometimes captivates me and hold, holds, holds me just like in this weird, nasty spot. Where I'm a kid, four or five years old. And it's an image of me standing like on a street corner as my dad walking away. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, take me with. When we sing, I don't hold my hand up because I think it's cool. I'm holding it up because I'm asking the Father to be with me. And as I've wrestled through all of those things with my relationship with my dad, I, I realize something. That I've tried to fill my life with different accolades. I've tried to fill my life with things trying to prove that I'm worthy of having. I've filled my life with different accomplishments and trying to claim just how can I win people over so they will like me, so they'll stay around. I've tried to show different moments where I'm saying, hey, my identity is worth you paying attention to. And when I read Matthew chapter 3, I'm reminded often of the great news that there is no work. There is no accomplishment. There is no one thing that I need to do in order to receive approval and love from my Heavenly Father. The one who created me, who knows me, who loves me, who's redeemed me, who chose me, who made me in his image, approves of me because of what the beloved son had done for me. And the identity that I have is not all that stuff. But it's a beloved son. That's what he sees in you too. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your great love. I'm grateful for the love that you shower us with because of your son. I'm grateful because I did nothing to earn it. And yet you look down on us because of what Jesus had done. And you call me your beloved son. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded constantly as we spend time in scripture and in prayer and in community with your people, God, that we would be reminded that we are not uh, the different things that happen to us or the way we think that people view us or, or the identity that we try to put on ourselves, Lord, but that we would remember that we are beloved and that we have a father who cares. We have a God who identifies with us, who has no problem standing right next to us, who is always there, ever present because of what you've done. Lord, we love you. It's in your precious name. Amen.